Welcome to Rocktail Hour, an hour's worth of rockin' good time in about 15 minutes with your buddies Dave, Treg, and Brent. Three old guys that are a testament to the fact that rock and roll keeps you young. In each Rocktail Hour, we bring you our favorite stories behind the greatest rock and roll tunes of all time and other interesting musings about the music and the rockers who inspire us. Rocktail Hour is an affiliate of Amazon.com. When you shop on Amazon, it would be cool if you would first click on the Amazon link on the Rocktail Hour homepage or affiliates page. And Amazon will kick a few bucks back to Rocktail Hour to help fund the free podcast. And once again, wouldn't mind if you purchased on Amazon my book, which is Until Murder Do Us Part. It's a legal thriller. I think you'll enjoy it. Today, Dave is going to tell us the story behind Sweet Child of Mine by the mighty Guns and Roses. Mighty they were. Thanks, Treg. Um, so Guns N' Roses was a favorite band of mine growing up. Um, they formed and came out with their first album kind of prior to my high school years, so like kind of junior high, and I was kind of in full music discovery mode when they really came on the scene and blew up huge in kind of the late 80s. And so I fell in love with Guns N' Roses when their Appetite for Destruction album came out, and so we'll talk about that album. Um, so the classic lineup, the, it's, it wasn't the original lineup, but the classic lineup that was on the Appetite for Destruction album was Axl Rose. His name was William Rose Jr., and we're not going to go into detail on him because, um, Brent, I hear you're a huge fan. Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> I'm his West Coast uh, fan club president. <laughs> <laughs> No, Brent is not a fan of Axl Rose, and there's a I'm lot of people either. who yeah. would not be fans of him. Now, are you not fans of him because of the music, or are you not fans of him because of the persona? All of the above. All of the above? Oh, so yeah. you're not a Guns N' Roses fan. He's, he's shrieking, it sounds like to me. You don't like his vocals? I love the guitar. Love the guitar. Slash? Yeah, we're going to yeah. talk about Slash. Not I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the vocals. Yeah. Gotcha. I like his vocals, um, and we'll talk a little bit about it. But he is a person, um, he actually had a horrific childhood. Um, he had to go through some therapy later in life where he found out that at the age of two, he was being abused in horrific ways by wow. some parents. Um, he grew up a junkie on the streets. He had a really nasty childhood, and that played into who he is. And you'll there's there's a lot of reasons not to like Axl Rose is kind of a result. Um, well, he was. I, I take back what I said. Then. Yeah, dude, why are you beating down the low guy? <laughs> right. Just kidding, he's a multimillionaire. I still hate him. Yeah. <laughs> so he was born William Rose Jr. He was obviously the vocalist. Um, Duff McKagan is a bass guitar player. Izzy Stradlin is the rhythm guitar player. And these guys were coming of age in the glam metal band days, and they all have stage names. Um, even Stephen Adler, it's not his original name. Um, he was the drummer. And then Slash, his original um, given name was Saul Hudson. Uh, Slash has an interesting background. His father was black and his mother – no, no, was it? No, I think his mother was black from Africa and his father was British. And so he grew up in London, actually. He was born in London and then he ended up moving into Los Angeles, at I think, at a young age. And he said it was kind of – he's always found his upbringing ironic be, musically because – he felt that all the Americans, because of the British invasion, were trying to sound like the Brits. You know, everyone worshipped Jimmy Page, for example. Meanwhile, all the Brits were trying to sound like black Africans That's from right. America. And he's like, I'm kind of both. <laughs> you know, I've got the British dad and I've got the African mom. Um, so he's like the perfect storm, I guess, in that sense. That's funny. Um, so a little bit on Slash. Let's go into him because he is my 
favorite player of the band, favorite kind of original member of the band. Um, I think his guitar work is phenomenal for kind of a heavy rock guy. Um, his nickname, by the way, Slash, which is kind of in some ways cheesy, but it was given to him by the father of a childhood friend. Uh, and he said that Saul was always in a hurry, zipping around from one thing to another. Slash. <laughs> so that's how he got his name, and it kind of stuck. Then shouldn't he have been Flash? Flash. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Slash. Okay. That works. Um, he was, he, I, like I said, I think he's a phenomenal guitar player. He's been critically acclaimed. Um, he started playing bass originally, but then he switched to the, to the guitar when one of his teachers was playing the intro riff to Brown Sugar on the guitar by the Stones. And immediately when he heard that, he said, I'm switching, tossed the bass aside, picked up the guitar. And he, he at the time was a champion BMX rider growing up as a kid. As soon as he discovered the guitar, he tossed his bike to the curb, and he went and practiced 12 hours a day. Um, I don't know if he would be a 10,000-hour guy, but he was a, an immediate – at a young age, he was immediately dedicated 100% to the instrument. And it comes through in his technique and his playing, um, and he drew influences from a lot of the guys that I kind of did. And he's older than I am, but um, he grew up um, – he actually said this, quote, you can trace a direct line to Jimmy Page if you know anything about my guitar playing. And so he does a lot of Page-esque type riffs. And I had a guitar teacher actually once who was a classical guy by training, and that's kind of where his heart was with music. And even he, who really detested, he didn't detest, but he didn't like rock guys. Even Clapton, he's like, okay, fine, I'll teach you a Clapton <laughs> song. He wanted to teach me chamber music and show me how to play Bach and stuff. But even he, when he was showing me some stuff on Guns N' Roses, he was transcribing some of the music for me and we were talking about it and he says, this guy's a good guitar player. Um, yeah, you had like a purely classical, phenomenal guitar player, by the way. His, um, he, was, he was great in his own right, but he recognized the genius of Slash's guitar playing. So he is not kind of the run-of-the-mill piece of crap heavy metal guitar players and you could throw your rock out the window out of a window and hit a good heavy metal guitar player quote-unquote good in the 80s slash I, I think was clearly a step above most of those guys dave if i can jump in and ask your guitarist and a good one what make makes him so good Great question. One of the things that makes him so good is one of the things that makes Eddie Van Halen so good. And I'm not going to, and there's a lot of things that make Eddie Van Halen so good. I'm not a big Van Halen fan, but the thing that sets a guy like Eddie Van Halen apart from a guy like Ingve Malmsteen or even Joe Satriani, you know, the crazy Steve Vai types, the real technicians on the guitar. Eddie Van Halen was clearly that, but subtly laced through Van Halen's, and I'm answering your question in a very roundabout way, but subtly laced through Eddie's technical prowess and genius was a lot of nods and influences um, based on just straight blues, feeling and touch. And so Slash had that. And so if you kind of break down a lot of his playing, and, it, and some of that comes because, like you said, you can draw a direct line to Jimmy Page, who was obviously a, he drew a lot from the early blues guys. Slash has a lot of great raw feel to it. One of the things that impressed me about Slash, and I actually learned this as a guitar technique, is just doing a reverse bend. He would do that a lot. What he would do, he would bend a note up, a step, and then he would pluck it and then let it fall down. Interesting. Right? And so that, that, it's a very common guitar technique, but he used it really tastefully. And for me, it's music is all about conveying emotion, and he conveys emotion. He doesn't show you, hey, I can rip. Like I said, you can, 
you find a million guitar players that can rip. But he takes those notes and he makes them meaningful, at least to me, uh, and the way I hear his music or his interpretation of the guitar. So, good answer. Good yeah, answer. hopefully Thank that you. Um, you know sheds a little bit of light on it. I'm a I'm a total fan of Slash, which is really the reason that I did this song. Um, so anyway, the original lineup was. Uh, the synthesis of two different bands at the time. One's was one was L.A. Guns, and the other one was Hollywood Rose. And you know, the backdrop for Guns N' Roses, we got to say, is the L.A. glam metal scene, which is just a disgusting piece of music <laughs> history in a lot of ways, in my opinion. Amen. Uh, there was just so much wrong with glam, and it, it actually a lot of it started by the. No, I shouldn't say it started, but some of it is owed to Motley Crue, who I thought was super cool when they first came out with the Shout at the Devil album. I was a kid and I loved that album, but like you know, they came out and they did Home Sweet Home. You guys remember that song? Mm-hmm. That was the first time like kind of a metal band came out with a ballad and then it got just misinterpreted and tweaked and pretty soon in the 80s if you were like a hair band you could not come out with an album that didn't have the quote-unquote power ballad oh, right. Right. and ozzy yeah. fell into it and all the bands were doing it and it just became cliche. not only that it just became so cliched it was the it was pop it was like pop with makeup and hair and stuff and that and um, louder guitars yeah yeah under the guise of legitimate rock and roll, which is why it's so, in, in my opinion, disgusting in some ways. I guess I'm going to put away my rock tail hour on L.A. Guns then. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've already okay. done, you've already had your one on White Snake, and you're, you've been cut off. So I'm doing Guns N' Roses, and I'm going to show you why it's not L.A. Glam. David Coverdale is legitimate. Come on. <laughs> there you go. He's not total glam. So that glam scene was heavy, though, because there were so many bands that were making it and they were getting huge in the 80s off of it that a ton of money poured into it and the record labels all wanted it. And they knew if you had a great power ballad and you had some shredding guitar players and some good looking dudes that were dressed up like chicks wearing spandex, (laughs) you were going to sell records. And so everyone flocked to it. And that hangover lasted well into the 90s so i we went up and when i was playing in bands in the early 90s um you know grunge was starting to kind of become a a little bit of a thing which actually put a bullet in the head of glam metal which was a wonderful thing in my opinion but we went up and we never played the la scene a whole lot but we went to um play the whiskey a go-go once we got a gig there and (laughs) i'm sitting there in the bathroom getting ready before the gig not getting ready i just gone to the bathroom but there's a dude there that's getting ready and he's, and this is in 1993, so it's well after the 80s, but he was like primping his hair and frizzing his hair. He had on this ridiculous outfit that was all stripey and spandexy, and he's putting on his makeup and like putting lipstick on and checking his eyeliner. Wow. And so I kind of was next to him in the bathroom, just washing my hands, and so oh, you got a gig tonight, huh? And he's like, Yeah, yeah, we're gonna play. And like, you know, just he sounded like <laughs> such a tool. And he looked at me and he goes, oh, What are you, roadie? <laughs> oh, and, uh, and I was just like just like a normal what I thought was kind of like a rock guy I don't even remember what I wore I'm probably just jeans and a t-shirt <laughs> and I was like no no I'm playing one of the bands tonight too and um, anyway it was sad because even well after that whole thing had kind of blown up there were still guys in the 90s hanging on to that it was really just a it became such a parody of itself it was sad so anyway Guns N' Roses was credited with fixing that in some ways and i'll talk about that here in a second 
But anyway, the Guns, Guns N' Roses musically were influenced by the Sex Pistols, the Stones, Zeppelin, um, kind of a glam punk band called Hanoi Rocks was one of their big influences. But they're mainly kind of like an attitude punk heavy rock band, really. Um, so their debut album was Appetite for Destruction and... That album, you don't like Axel, so I'm not going to try to convince you because I think he's like uni at a sushi restaurant. He's an acquired taste. You're either going to like it or you're really going to say, what the heck is that? <laughs> and I love uni and I like Axel actually as as a vocalist. I think um, he's got a lot of raw emotion and attitude that comes through in his vocals, but I get how you wouldn't like him. Um, but anyway, the album was huge. It went to number one on the Billboard 200 and it sold 28 million copies worldwide, including 18 million units in the U.S. And to this date, it remains the best-selling debut album in the history of the United States wow. music scene. Wow, didn't know that. That's impressive. It was a gargantuan success, right? Um, released in July of 1987. And, um, you know, like we mentioned, originally they had a lot of glam influences, but they've been credited largely with helping to counter the pop glam rock movement. So do you guys remember the Welcome to the Jungle video? Mm-hmm. Right? And what happens in that video is Axl Rose is playing the kind of protagonist, and he comes in just wearing a shirt and some jeans and a backwards hat. He gets dropped off by a bus into L.A., and it's all about Welcome to the Jungle. Welcome to where you're going to get eaten alive by this rampant, nasty society that, you've, that you're a part of. And slowly he transforms from this country boy at the beginning of the video into this big, nasty, glam, frizzy hair guy who's singing Welcome to the Jungle on a stage. After that kind of – you could say that was a little bit glam what they did there. But after that, they kind of jettisoned the whole glam thing. You didn't see them with makeup on. You didn't see them with big hair. They just were dressing like rock and roll guys after that, kind of like going to see a Guns N' Roses concert, going to see a Metallica concert. You're going to see the same kind of a vibe going on there. And so Rolling Stone declared that Guns N' Roses were, quote, hard rock heroes – who'd managed to take the music back from the over-commercialized, faux-rebellious hair bands who cared more about mineral water, hair weaves, and a good night's sleep <laughs> than real rock and roll, end quote. Good night's sleep. So they were at the epicenter of the edgy rock scene, which was on the Sunset Strip in the 80s. And um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie Decline of the Western Civilization. <laughs> it's real. It's a documentary. And it's done back in the 70s, and it documents the whole punk rock mu- movement that came of age in the UK. And it interviews these kids, and these are like punk kids with like you know squirrel stapled to their face or something. I mean, these kids were not literally that, but I mean, these kids were like a mess. And the whole thing is this is the decline of the Western Civilization. Well, they did a part two that was. Um, the Decline of the Western Civilization Part 2, and they were all interviewing these glam bands in the 80s on Sunset Strip in L.A., and all these guys were just playing the role. I mean, like we've talked about, they all looked the same, they played the same music, but each one of them, they're saying, I know we're going to make it, there's no way we can make it, that we're not going to make it, because if you came to our show, you'd see why we're different. <laughs> and, they yeah. look like, and they look like every other guy and there's 50 million guys in the interview and they all say the same thing and they all become alcoholics and they're all like you know end up working at Tower Records you know trying to you know buy themselves a Big Mac at the end of the deal there goes their sponsorship from Tower Records <laughs> yeah that's right so anyway that was Guns N' Roses they lived the hedonism of the day they um when they were living on the Sunset Strip before they got big it was the five of them living in a one-bedroom apartment that didn't even have a bathroom. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. 
squalor. And wow. it was a revolving door of all the seedy elements that you could imagine from the Sunset, Sunset Strip in that day. They'd have strippers and they'd have all kinds of just bad elements, drug dealers, and they were all just raging alcoholics. But what the one guy saw, and I don't remember his name, but he was the guy from Geffen Records who saw in Guns N' Roses the same thing that he saw in Motley Crue, and he was the guy that made Motley Crue huge, and he actually staked his whole career on it, trying to convince Geffen Records, hey, let me take these guys under my arm, because what he saw that they that no one else had that GNR did was the musical prowess, the songwriting ability, and then he saw Slash, and he saw what the drummer and the bass player could do, and he said, these guys are different. And so he marketed them heavily. heavily. He got the record company to get behind them, and boom, they blew up like we talked about in a massive way. Uh, wow! So they're they're an, they're an interesting group. Like I said, I don't admire their lifestyle or their personal choices, but I do admire what they do musically on a lot of fronts. So let's talk about the song "Sweet Child of Mine." Now this is this is an interesting one. I picked it one because it was their first and only number one single. So it was by far their most successful song that they'd ever done. Um, it went to number one on the Billboard Hot 100 charts. And the interesting thing, though, is that it's, you know, for Guns N' Roses being kind of an in-your-face hard rock band, at least they were at that time during the Appetite for Destruction album, this was the one song on the album that was a little bit poppy, that was a little bit, um, I, I don't want to say glam, but it was a little bit, you know, kind of palatable to the masses. You know, my little sister might have wanted to borrow my Guns N' Roses album and listen to this song. <laughs> Very radio-friendly. Very radio-friendly. And for that reason, Slash, who in his heart of hearts is like a hard rock guy uh, and a blues guy, but he um, he detested this song. The genesis of it is pretty interesting. He was sitting in the studio doing what he called a string skipping exercise, just trying to get his technique down because it skips strings and does, has a couple octaves, that classic opening riff for uh, Sweet Child of Mine. And so he was just kind of playing around while Izzy Stradlin, the rhythm guitar player, heard it and he said, hey, keep playing that. So Slash kept playing it. Izzy started putting some chords behind it. Boom, the bass player caught on, says, oh, I got that. And he put a, you know, the bass. The drummer fell in, put kind of this upbeat, kind of a poppy almost drum beat to it that was really kind of upbeat and bright. And um, Axel was in another room, and he hears the band jamming this, and he's like, oh, my gosh, that's a great thing. And he immediately takes out a poem that he had been writing for his girlfriend. Her name was Erin Everly, and she was the daughter of Don Everly of the Everly Brothers, huh. which is interesting. So he had written this poem for her about how beautiful she was. He then takes that, modifies it, and literally from the time that Slash started kind of just messing around on that riff until they had like the basic um, structure of the song, it was one hour. Wow. So what really happened is they stumbled on this song on accident, almost, right? And it ended up becoming their number one greatest hit. And um, I think from a songwriting perspective, it's great. And the reason that I like this song a lot is because of the guitar work. If someone were to come to eh, there's there's actually a few songs that I would point this to. But if someone said, hey, what showcases Slash's ability on the guitar? What shows me how good of a feel player he is? Not just a technical player, but a feel player he is. Sweet Child of Mine is just a really great example of it. Because Slash came in and because he detested like the song itself and how, like like I said, poppy it was. He said the favorite part of the song was when they said, okay, Slash, give us a lead. He modulated it up a step, and he does this blistering lead in um, in the key of E when the song is in the key of D. And the guitar solo for the song 
speaks to me this day. I listen to it. I'm like, man, that is timeless. It is so good. And I wish on Rocktail Hour we didn't have these copyright issues where we could actually play some of it. Because this would be one where I'd say, hey, I want to play this, the clip of this. So go on the Rocktail Hour homepage, click on the song or get the song, and listen to the lead. It's phenomenal. He he ladens it with a wah-wah pedal, which a wah-wah pedal is something that kind of rocks back and forth between real strong bass, real strong treble, and it gives it that wah-wah feel. Hendrix used them a lot, Clapton used them a lot, and uh, Slash was great with them. And from Slash's perspective, he said, that lead salvaged the song for me. I could at least say I'm proud of the song because of that lead that I put in there. Um, so anyway, at the end of the song, the producer in the in the studio had said, hey, why don't we do a breakdown at the end? Breakdown meaning just saying, hey, let's get to the basic um, music riffs and just kind of like let that kind of loop around and just see what happens with it. So they did that, and they're sitting in the studio listening to the loop, listening to the breakdown loop. And none of the musicians could figure out what to do with it. They said, that's kind of good. And then Axl Rose says, well, where do we go? Where do we go now? <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the producer says, those are the lyrics. That's where we go. Sing that. And this is where I'll make my plea for Axl Rose. Okay, so think of them in the creative process of making the song and then listen to the song as it goes. They have just this thing where the, the music's just kind of looping endlessly. And then Axl Rose is giving one, given one mandate. Those lyrics that you just said, where do we go, where do we go now, just sing them. And listen to what he does. He kind of starts low, and then he kind of builds it, and he builds it, and he builds it. And then you can just feel like the rage coming up with him. And then at the end, he's just like blistering it, and the band just comes in and just punches you in the face at the end of that song. And for me, that's like what music's about. I mean, it was all just right there on the spot, 100% feel, and it comes through in the recording. So anyway, I thought it was pretty darn cool. That's the closing refrain of the song. Now I'll go back to why it's also valid to not like Axl Rose. So listen to this. The video, do you guys remember the video? No, I don't. Okay, so the video is, it was shot in a, at a room called the Huntington Room, which is in Huntington Beach, California, and it showed, it's all in black and white, and the band's sitting there dressing their Guns N' Roses gear. All the hot chicks who actually were the band's girlfriends at the time are sitting around the band watching them, and they're playing the song, and it's great. It's an iconic video. The guy that shot, Axel, or shot Guns N' Roses up to fame went to the MTV guys, lobbied him, and said, hey, I want you to play this song. They started playing it at like three in the morning on their late night rotation. And even at three in the morning, it got this huge groundswell of support and people wanted to hear it on MTV. So it became like an MTV classic instantly. Anyway, great video, I think, because it's just rawness of the band playing. But Axel's original idea for the video was scrapped. And this is what Axel wanted to do. He wanted to have the video showing an Asian woman carrying a baby into a foreign land like going through customs or whatever and doing the thing kind of like with their baby only to find that once she gets into the foreign land she gets busted because the baby is actually a dead corpse filled with heroin (laughs) (laughs) nice so just absolutely ridiculous so fortunately geffen Records says no we're not going to do that we're just going to do a good (laughs) video so it shows you how like kind of depraved and debaucherous these guys were in terms of their um approach so nothing to be admired there but again if you want to look at the music i think the music is easily worthy of ad from admiration um so a couple other accolades on the song it was number 37 on Guitar World's list of the 100 greatest guitar solos of all time. Um I'm totally fine with that. Which by the way, you want to guess what number 1 was? 
top guitar solos mm-hmm. of all Guitar time? World is like a guitar trade rag. All guitar players, subscri- not all, but they, they subscribe to it. They do a lot of good transcriptions. Number one guitar solo of all time. Louie Louie. <laughs> I don't even know if that's on the list because I didn't totally look deep joking. enough. <laughs> no uh, I'm thinking Pink Floyd, David Gilmour in uh, Comfortably Numb. Comfortably Numb, I think, was number four or number oh. five. Okay. So you're there. Uh, Stairway to Heaven. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Interestingly enough. So you had Stairway to Heaven. You had next was Eruption, Eddie Van Halen. Okay. And I'm not a big Eddie Van Halen fan, as I said, but you got to listen to Eruption in its context. And we could do a Rocktail Hour on Eruption, actually. But I think it was done in like 78. I mean, dude, that guy was so light years beyond his time with the guitar. The stuff he was doing was, yeah. you know, otherworldly. Um, so it was that. And then I think number three was uh, Freebird. Huh. Leonard Skinnerd, yeah. which is a great one. And then you, and Hotel California's top 10. But I think number four was Comfortably Numb. Cool. Yeah. So anyway. But Slash, and um, and this one was number 37. I think it deserves to be there. Um, the opening riff was voted as the number one guitar riff of all time by the readers of Total Guitar Magazine. I don't know if I'd go there, number one, but it's definitely an iconic riff. Everybody knows it. It's been sampled over and over again in a bunch of other songs. And then finally, it was number 35 on Rolling Stone's 40 Greatest Songs That Changed the World. Um, I don't know how that one changed the world necessarily, but I just think it's a, I think it's a great song. Its popularity was immense, and um, I think showcases their talent as good as any of the other tunes. Changed rock and roll. so It did, and if you believe Rolling Stone, it kind of salvaged it from the lame hair bands of the day. Mm-hmm. Them and Metallica. They and Metallica yeah. did it. Mm-hmm. You got it. 100% agreed. All right. That is Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses. Great stuff. Thanks, Dave. I've got new renewed respect for Axl Rose and... I'll listen with a you know a little more open mind, I guess. Just next listen time. to that little refrain and see what he does with it, and you'll feel <laughs> yeah, it. That's pretty cool. Well, you can listen to a clip from the song on iTunes by clicking on the album link on the Rocktail Hour website. Please email us at dudes at rocktailhour.com if you think we got it all wrong, if you have an interesting rock tale of your own, or if you have a recommendation of a song that would be a good subject for Rocktail Hour. Please follow us on Facebook and Twitter and rate us on iTunes. And until the next Rocktail Hour, rock on. <laughs>